You know, life, life as we know it and experience it is complex and it throws up all kinds of situations in which we need guidance and discerning what God would want us to do. It might be in our career choices, it might be in the financial dimension of our life. Just speaking with a couple this past week in that area. Uh, it could be in terms of our relationships, where we live. And so, what is God's will for my life is a very understandable uh, preoccupation with many of us, especially those of us who are believers and want to live our life in the light of what God says to us. But in this very understandable and normal preoccupation with the logistics of life, one of the dangers we have is of forgetting the fact that the bulk of God's will is already clearly revealed for us in God's word. And the starting point, for example, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. So you want to know what God's will is? It's very clear. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice and keep on being transformed by renewing your minds. And then you will test and approve what God's good and perfect will is. And notice again the link between offering to God something that's holy and it being an act of worship. Uh, which is exactly what this series is all about, worshipping the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. And so understanding what these two verses mean and unpacking their practical significance is a very important part of this series. Now the first question that comes to mind is, what exactly is a living sacrifice? In the verses that follow this text, which won't be the focus of our study, but it belongs in this introduction, the Apostle Paul talks about the fact that we as members of the body of Christ belong to each other. And the gifts that God has given to us are intended to serve and bless other members of the body of Christ. And when we do, it becomes an act of worship. Because worship is not just the sense of God, but also the service of God. In God's presence, as we have been for the last little while, we have been experiencing the sense of His presence, and we worship. We worship in singing songs, we worship in liturgical acts like confession, we hear testimonies of God's work. Those are all the sense dimension of worship. But out of a heart that is touched by that sense worship, there needs to flow the service dimensions of worship, where we serve one another. So to be able to go out from a worship service like this and say, oh, we had a wonderful time of worship and be completely uninvolved for the rest of the week in God's kingdom is a total contradiction in terms. And so there's our first fundamental answer. You want to know what God's will is? Serving the body of Christ through the gifts that God has given to us is an expression, a primary expression of God's will for our lives, whatever else it may involve. And it is an act of worship. Now, what these spiritual gifts are and how we find them is the subject of another sermon altogether. And we'll come to that as part of the next major series that we'll do a couple of months from now. But for this morning, I want to focus, because this is the series we're focusing on, is on the fact that these living sacrifices are called holy living sacrifices. I want to focus on that word holy again. Now, we began our series by understanding that the fundamental understanding of the word for worship in the scriptures is The idea of being set apart. God specifically is uniquely holy. There's none like Him. And you and I have been set apart. Uh, Anibal has reminded us that God sets apart space, time and people. 
But we also learned that one dimension of that uniqueness of God was the beauty of his moral perfections, holiness in the sense of purity. And that's what I want to focus on in today's message. Holy living sacrifices. Not just in the sense that we've been set apart to serve one another, which we have, but also in the sense of becoming a people who are increasingly conformed to the character of Jesus. And one of the things that might surprise us is that the two are linked together. That serving one another in the body of Christ, in many cases, becomes a powerful agent of transformation. To break the tyranny of the body in many dimensions of our life. When I started my ministry here almost 35 years ago, at that time in Leadership Magazine, there was a long article written by a man who um, had a 10-year battle with, with pornography in his life. And how God delivered him from all of that. And at one point he talked about a very important step in that treating process. And he says this. He says, I asked God when I could get on with my life. My prayer was answered when God asked me to be a pastor. For a month I was so angry that I would have taken a swing at God if he had been standing there. But to deny the reality of that request would be to deny the reality of the new life growing within me. The anger has been replaced with a deep joy of being trusted to care for his people I plan on entering seminary next year. The offering of his body in serving God in that horizontal dimension of worship was according to God's dealings with him an integral part of his continuing to be healed in the moral dimension of his life. Now it doesn't always have to be upfront service. In fact, it seldom is for most people. Nor does the issue have to be pornography. The principle still stands. When we serve God through the gifts that he's given to us, however humble it may be, we begin to harness a fresh power for breaking the tyranny of sin in other dimensions of our lives. I know for myself, when I became an elder, in this, when they asked me to be an elder in this church, I was 30 years old. Man, my, my commitment to the pursuit of holiness in my life got much more intense at that point. And then five years later, when we became um, staff members of this church, I had to preach every week. Well, that awesomeness of the calling ratcheted up even more. And simultaneously with this, uh, as I began to get an understanding that my calling to my family was to raise and train a son and a daughter that God has blessed us with to become holy instruments of righteousness. This calling in the personal dimension and in the public dimension of my life just continued to give me more and more zeal to pursue holiness. Because I said that the two just can't coexist. Laxity in any dimension in my life that is contrary to God's will and this kind of calling couldn't coexist together. I remember another, my father-in-law was appointed an elder, not when he was 30, but when in the last five years of his life. And I had the privilege of seeing his life in terms of his conformity to the calling of Christ just simply take off in those last five years. Some of you will remember when you served here with him. To kind of put it in a nutshell, what we're saying is, when we offer the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness to serve him in the horizontal dimension of this world, we also begin to experience power in the moral dimension of our lives as well. So maybe, maybe for some of you here this morning, this journey towards personal holiness is is high time that you stepped up to the plate and accomplished and accepted the gifts that God has given to you and the calling to serve this body. Could it be that for some of you at least you are stymied in your growth in the moral dimension of your life because you're not involved in the horizontal dimension. The links are pretty strong and so I would encourage you to 
to at least begin to think about that seriously. Now in verse 2 he shifts to the real battleground which is where most of our time is going to be this morning. Where he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Conformity and transformation are two important concepts that I want to take out And I want to do it by hopefully an image that is accessible to all of us. You know, all of us have eaten jello at various times. And you, you, you've seen jellos in amazing shapes. Now we all know what gives the jello its shape. It's the mold into which it's poured. So the jello is shaped entirely by forces that operate on it from outside. On the other hand, you take something like bread and look at the amazing contours on, the, on that bread. That didn't come because somebody put bread into a mold. You don't stuff the bread into a mold. You just put it in the oven and the yeast that is on the inside begins to push outward and it begins to take shape. In the first case, the shape is imposed on it from outside. In the second case, the shape is uh, produced by what is coming up from within. This is what Paul is saying as he applies it to the Christian life. He says, in the world in which we live in, there is a tremendous, relentless pressure to conform to its schemes. The pattern, the Greek word translated schemes, is schema, which means its ways of thinking, its ways of planning. And that world and is coming through us at so many different channels. There is that pressure to be molded. And Paul says, the scriptures say the only way you can resist that is by unleashing a different set of forces from within, which is transformation by the renewing of our mind. And so, alongside offering our bodies as instruments of righteousness to serve the body, we are also to be committed to a lifelong process of resisting the pressures from outside by being transformed from within by renewing our mind. Now, how does mind renewal take place? Now, there's one general sense in which it happens almost unconsciously. As I was thinking about it even between last night and this morning. As you come to church every Sunday and listen to sermons, as you dig deeper through the study guides, as you talk about it in small groups, as you meet one-on-one perhaps in your mentoring sessions, as you read good solid books that are written on this subject, uh, in all of those ways, and as you read through the Bible every year, there's a general sense in which our minds are slowly being renewed. And that's happening almost unconsciously, provided you're participating in all these disciplines. But... That's not enough by itself. Something more is necessary. I want to illustrate that that's something more. Uh, by a story that actually happened many, many years ago. Again, when I just started my ministry here, I, I was asked to serve on the ordaining council of our district for two terms. And uh, my, the area that was assigned to me in my first examination was on sanctification. This is a fancy word for holiness, what we're talking about today. And the young man that... Uh, come up was he was a man who had graduated from our denominational Bible college for four years. He had served as an intern in a very healthy church in our denomination where he got good training. He had then been a pastor for two years in a church and he was coming up for ordination. So as part of his uh, assignment in this area was to write a paper on the Holy Spirit. And he had written a 15-page paper on the Holy Spirit. It's a well-written paper. So I asked him a few questions just to make sure that he actually had written the paper himself, which he had. And then I asked him this question. I said, if I bring your wife into this room right now, and I were to ask her, what is your greatest problem when it comes to holiness? What would she say? You know what? Our spouses know the best answer to that question anyway, right? And we learned that last week if you were here. Why? And he said right away, he said, oh, my, my anger problem. I said, okay, that's good. I said, how do you deal with your anger problem? Hmm. Well, I count to ten. It's not a bad idea. Jesus, James says, be quick to listen and slow to speak. It's not a bad idea anyway. 
So then I asked him this question. I said, this amazing paper that you've written on the Holy Spirit, how have you applied the truths of this paper to your problem of anger? There was a pin drop silence. I could have hit this guy with a two by four to produce that deadpan expression. His jaw dropped and he said, I never thought of it. Unbelievable. He writes a 15 page paper on the Holy Spirit, understands what he's written, and it didn't even occur to him that it had something to do with this problem of anger. There's a massive disconnect between knowledge and life. So while there's this general sense in which mind renewal is taking place through all the things that I've mentioned, when it comes to dealing with the specific points at which the mold of the world is pressing in upon us, general knowledge is not enough. At least that's been my experience. And we are all pressed at different points. The way in which the world is trying to squeeze me to think like itself may not be the same way in which Sacco or Sam or anybody else is being pressed. Each one of us experiences that pressure in unique ways. And therefore we need some uniquely fashioned responses to that. So here's the question for me. If, if mere knowledge does not transform the mind or renew the mind, what kind of knowledge is it? How do we harness this knowledge that actually becomes effective in resisting this outward pressure by inward pressure? And I want to take you to a well-known story in the life of David, but perhaps from an angle that you haven't thought about before. You all know the story of David and Goliath and how he overcame him with the slings. You know, Children sing songs about, about David and his slings. You, again, just in case you don't know the story, his, Israel was out in the battlefield with the Philistines. There was this massive Philistine soldier who was charging, challenging them to one-on-one decisive combat and the victor-take-all kind of thing. And the people of Israel were shaking in fear. David is sent by his father to check how his brothers are doing. He hears this mockery. He interprets this correctly as a mockery of Israel's God. And his view of God is so big, he says, I can handle this giant. And so he goes to Saul and says, let me fight him. Saul is completely incredulous and says, tries to dissuade him. And says, okay, go, here's my armor. So David puts on Saul's armor and very quickly realizes that there's no way he can use this armor. It doesn't fit him at all. And so he throws off all this armor and with a kind of giant bearing down upon him, he just selects five stones, puts them in his sling and, whoop, and off it goes. And the end of the story, as far as the giant is concerned. Now here's my question. Ever thought about it with a giant bearing down upon him? How long did he have to choose those stones? Yeah, that's right, not long. He didn't have a lot of time to say, will this work, will that work? You know, when we try to skim stones sometimes with our kids, we're trying to carefully select the stones. We don't often get it right. I can't prove it to you, but I suspect David probably did a lot of this stuff when he was a shepherd boy. Maybe he practices a sling to get a wandering sheep's attention. Maybe that's how a bear and a lion got frightened away. I mean, it's probably natural. I remember growing up in India, waiting for my friends to come out to play. I'd pick up little stones and see if I could hit the nearest lamppost, you know. And after a while, I got pretty good at gauging which kind of stones will curb in which direction and hit the lamppost. Here's the question, here's the situation, I think. In the heat of the battle, David had immediate and intuitive knowledge of what he needed because of long years of practice when there was no crisis involved. That's when he got to know it. And so he didn't need, I suspect he may not have even looked down. He could tell by the feel which stones would work, which stones wouldn't. That whole act of choosing, loading the sling, firing at him was one long, unthinking, intuitive response. Learned in a time when there was no crisis. So here's the answer. This is the kind of knowledge that transforms us. Not just memorized knowledge, but familiarity through constant use that makes it accessible in the heat of the battle. 
So while there's general transformation going on by general exposure to God's word and our minds are being renewed, in terms of specifically resisting those giants that are pressing in upon us, we need not just general memorized knowledge, we need accessibility in the heat of the battle. This was the problem with the young man that I was interviewing. When things happened in his life to trigger anger, he didn't have an immediate intuitive weapon at his hand. When somebody cut him off on the highway, when a child spilled milk after he told him, be careful, when his wife didn't meet expectations, we looked at that last week, he didn't have ready access to God's word at that time. The specific word, not the general word, the specific word to oppose that particular pressure from the world. Because how you act depends exactly on how you think at those moments. Your thinking processes actions and how you process them determines your responses. It doesn't work any other way. What he needed to do with anger, you and I have to do with every area of our lives in which we are facing the pressure of the world to conform. We need to harness smooth stones that are instinctively available to us in the heat of the battle with which to resist the work of the enemy. You tracking with me so far? Okay. Now in the past I've shared with you a couple of examples from the early part of my Christian pilgrimage when God was teaching me to pray. When when the only way I could do it was to get up early enough. And so there were smooth stones that I needed. And I won't bore you with all the details. Most of you have heard this before. But just by way of remembrance. Isaiah chapter 40, 31. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It was one of the early verses of scripture that helped me at those moments when I needed to get up. And then uh, a few years later when I joined the staff of this church. Sunday mornings I needed more smooth stones. Because I wanted to release more time to pray and prepare my heart. And Isaiah 50 verses 4 and why The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue To know a word that sustains the weary He wakens me morning by morning He wakens my ear to listen like one being taught Now I can rattle these off today Because they have become second nature to me They weren't like that then But years and years and years of using this In order to resist the pressures of the enemy To be able to carve out that time to seek his face and pray Have made them instinctive Now I remember one time when I was sharing this in a place, one fellow came up to me and said, Oh, my problem isn't getting up out of bed. I do that all the time. He said, my problem is I immediately start reading the newspaper. And two hours are gone. And my biggest problem is I don't pray because I read the newspaper. So Isaiah 40 and 50 would be completely useless for him. They were tailor-made for me. He needed to find some other truth from God's word that would be readily accessible to him every morning so that the paper can take its place until he has finished seeking God. Now, anyway, I was sharing all this last August with a uh, with, uh, uh, church in San Jose, California. And I finished the sermon. Then later on in the afternoon, I was praying. And I, God kind of surprised me with a question. He said, you know, this is a good sermon. He said, but uh, what recent smooth stones do you have to share with the people? Wow, that was a kind of a little bit of fun. I realized, well, I don't have anything ready-made quickly. I can tell you many that have functioned in my life. But the question was, what are you doing now? And I was convicted. And I said, God, next time I preach the sermon, which is today, by the way, uh, I said, I want some fresh smooth stones. So I asked him, I said, what area of my life do you want me to do this? Where where is the enemy pressing in on me? Specifically, the world, I should say. And what am I going to do? And the first thing he brought to my mind was my marriage. And if you were here last week, you know why. Because that is one of the fundamental places in which spiritual formation is taking place. Our life with our spouses, our life with our children, and our places of work. Those are the three major areas in which spiritual transformation mostly doesn't happen in church. Hopefully we are equipping you to deal with these three other areas where it's happening. 
And so I asked the Lord, I said, okay. Uh, and you know the reason for that, as I told you, if you know us, bef- uh, any, you've been here for any length of time, you know that Sham and I are so completely different. Our spiritual gifts are different, our temperaments are different. And so while that makes us a wonderful team together, it makes for lots and lots of opportunities for justified self-centeredness to raise its ugly head. And in no time at all, something completely smooth and happy becomes boom, off you go in one direction. You know. And while I don't have an anger problem, I really don't, I've never, I hardly ever explode in anger and don't have a problem in that area. However, as one very wise old Christian pointed out to me many years ago in India once, he said, young man, you have a problem, you can have a problem with intellectual violence, be careful. I've never forgotten that. And that's what happens to me. I don't get angry, I get very intense with the rational side of my argument and I, I can become very forceful with whoever at that point, primarily in my, in my home. And so that's what I needed some smooth stones for. And boy, did he ever give them all to me in one clump. He's faithful. He's faithful, right? And so I want to share with you. Some of these are recent. And I am nowhere at the point where I am with the Isaiah verses here, okay? There I'm 20 years into the process, 30 years into the process. Here I'm about four or five months into the process, which is very, very early. These things don't happen in two or three days. They take months and years. And so bear with me. These are not being given to you as some champion. I'm just, you can check with my wife if you're not sure. These are just in the very, very early stages. Okay, but just to show you how these things work so that you can find your own smooth stones for wherever God is pressing in, the world is pressing in upon you. I read it. All this happened in one morning as I was reading. And by the way, I didn't go looking for it. I just continued reading what I normally read and trusted him to give them to me. Ecclesiastes 7.9 Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. There was something about the translation that gripped my heart. Anger lodging, taking up home in my bosom deep within me and making me a fool. I was immediately revolted at the thought of that. And I said, God, I don't want that at all. I don't want anger lodging in my bosom and making me a fool. And so that right away I knew this was one smooth stone that I needed to start memorizing. Then secondly, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear a servant cursing you. Now, we're not talking about servants, we're talking about marriage, so why would this verse speak to me? It was a free translation that popped into my mind right away, and it read something like this. Don't listen to everything that Cham says about you that is negative, otherwise you're going to, it is going to start bothering you, and then you're going to start reacting in the wrong way. You have an option to disregard what she says at times about you. So that was a free translation of this word that made it a second smooth stone for me. Now you might say, what if sometimes you should be listening to what she says? Well, that was the next smooth stone, right? (laughs) The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. I mean, the, the, the imagery in this is powerful. What he's saying is, it's much, much better to listen to what she's saying quietly, because if you're not, and you start coming back with all your stuff, you're just shouting like a ruler among fools. You're a ruler of fools. You're not a leader in your home anymore. Uh, That hit me hard because that immediately socketed to another smooth stone that had become part of my life for many years, which had to do with leadership. When Ron rules over men in righteousness, he rules in the fear of God. He's like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. He's like brightness after the rain. That's been a smooth stone for my leadership ministry here. And God was saying, you want to lead like that or you want to lead like a fool? So if you don't listen to your wife when she's speaking wise words to you, you're just shouting like a ruler among fools. I don't want that. And then he said, if you do want to fight, wisdom is much better than the weapons of war. So why not just speak wisdom into the situation? And one sinner ruins much good. You can blow the whole thing with one mistake. You see how relevant these verses are? This is what I needed at the crossroads. I can only remember this. And just in case I wasn't sure that these words were actually coming from God, the next verse sealed it completely. Listen to it. This, the God has a sense of humor too. You know? He says, 
Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, in case I didn't get the previous verse. And apply your heart to my knowledge. It all has to do with me. It's ultimately not about your wife. It's about your relationship with me. Apply your heart to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within yourself. If all of them are ready on your lips, like smooth stones, that your trust may be in the Lord. I have made them known to you today, even to you. Any doubt, Sundar, that this comes from me? You better get busy with this. So in a period of about 15 minutes, I've got four smooth stones from God that I'm beginning to work on very slow. As I said, I'm nowhere near. I'm only at the beginning stages of my... They are not yet second nature to me. One, one of them is becoming a little bit. Most of them aren't yet second nature. I blow it a lot of the time. Last night in the question-answer period, one person asked me, do these things work instantaneously? Now, there's nothing instantaneous about the ways and the works of God. Everything takes time and process that's how he works in our lives. So nothing happens overnight. That is the ways of this world. Throw something into the button, push the button, and out comes the pop can. Nothing in the Christian life works like that. So you just might just change your expectations completely. It's a long obedience in the same direction, and the fruit is wonderful. But it doesn't come quickly. Now here's a natural question. So how do you recognize smooth stones? I think there's one infallible way in which you can recognize them. It works for me all the time. But there might be others that work for you. As you're reading, if you ever find yourself saying, boy, if I can only remember that when, (laughs) if I can only remember that when that guy at the next cubicle at work does whatever, if I can only remember this when my wife, or if I can only remember this when that board member, if I can only remember this when, whenever you find yourself saying, if I can only remember that, that's usually a dead giveaway that that's a smooth stone waiting for you. (laughs) Because you want to remember it, right? Follow up, if I can only remember that with, I am going to remember it. And so write it down, memorize it, galvanize it, attempt to put it into use, and if it doesn't quite work, ask God for another one. You know. And so, that's right, He will give it. That's why He says, trust me. That's why we began by saying, give me faith that you, to trust what you say, that you are good. So, when we are willing to commit a lifetime to these two things, yielding our bodies as instruments of righteousness to serve one another in the body of Christ. And we combine that with this kind of, both a general exposure to God's word through all the ways we've talked about, and the specific targeted resistance to the pressures of the world, we become progressively holy living sacrifices. And it's an act of worship. Now, as I draw this message to a close, let me deal with the most likely objection to it. And that is, well, this is a lot of hard work. I didn't sign up for this. Well, it is hard. And often the easy route is easy. And we take it. And I understand that. All of us feel like that in some of the time. And some of us feel like that all the time. So, one more thing we need. And that's to do with the issue of motivation. What's going to motivate us? We need, we need an enduring motivation for this, for a life of committing ourselves to worshipping God as becoming living sacrifices in these two ways. And I think it was an English Puritan, I've never been able to track who this person was, who coined this beautiful phrase, the expulsive power of a competing affection. It may sound like, like a fancy word, but we live by it all the time. And you'll see very quickly what we mean. We live by this in every area of our life, if we just don't know it. It is so obvious that we don't know it, and we don't apply it therefore to our Christian lives. Let me just unpack it for you. I want to unpack it for you by a story of a man that might not connect with the younger people in terms of the person, but those of you who are older remember the TV show Perry Mason. He was a lawyer. You know, it was a fictional creation of one. And uh, the man who used to act 
Perry Mason in the television show, a man by the name of Raymond Burr. And if you've seen the shows, Raymond Burr was a tall, slim, handsome guy. You know. But he wasn't always, didn't always remain that way. In the latter part of his life, there was another TV show called Ironside. And this same man acted the role, but by this time, he was a very large, heavy-set individual. And I read an article in the newspaper when Raymond Burr died. I learned some very interesting things about him that directly bear on this situation. Apparently, when he auditioned for the role of Perry Mason, he was told that you can't get the role because you're 80 pounds overweight. So they offered him another lesser role. But he didn't want that lesser role. He really wanted the role of Perry Mason. He said, I'll lose the weight. Give me three months. And in three months, he lost 80 pounds. But evidently, he obviously didn't keep it, on, keep it off. In fact, this article went on to show that during the course of his life, he had gone through the cycle of putting on and taking off over 800 pounds at various times in his life. That experience shows us two things, teaches us two things that are pertinent to us. First of all, it shows us that if we want something badly enough, the discipline required to get it is no problem at all. Because he wanted that role, the discipline of losing 80 pounds was no problem at all. The second thing we learned from it, though, it wasn't an enduring motivation. Once he got what he wanted, once that show ran his, ran his thing, he lost it. So therefore we need an enduring motivation. We need to want something badly enough so that the discipline becomes easy and we need it to be enduring enough. Now I said we live by this every day of our life. Let me give you some illustration. I remember the time when our kids used to play in the backyard many years ago. And uh, would call them in for disham, would call them in for dinner. I don't want to come in, I'm not hungry. Well come in, it's time for dinner anyway. So they come in mumbling and grumbling and take off all their skates and whatnot. And they polish off two platefuls of food. They were hungry. How come they weren't hungry? Because the joy of hockey or whatever it was... That delight completely eclipsed the uh, need for food. And so the fasting was an easy thing to do. But once the game was gone, then they ate. That's why I've said to you, and, and we do it as adults all the time too, none of us has a discipline problem in this room. Absolutely nobody has a discipline problem. Every issue is a delight problem, desire problem. Because we never have trouble disciplining ourselves for the things that we really want. Because we always do what we want to do, right? So we need desire, but it needs to be enduring. What is the enduring object of desire that does not lose its power once we get it? That's what makes it enduring. The Apostle Paul gives us an answer in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This for me is another smooth stone in the area of exercise. I hate exercise. I absolutely hate it. I've never liked it. This is the verses that have kept me going in that area. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. There's the non-enduring side. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. You know, no athlete disciplines themselves because they love discipline. You think Michael Phelps used to get up every morning and say, oh, I'm looking forward to 11 hours of swimming today? No, he's looking forward to the eight gold medals. And the rush that will come when he represents his country. Desire is what made the discipline easy. Take the desire away. Why do, they, why do they not keep up 11 hours of swimming after they retire? Because there's no crown at the end. No desire. Now the discipline is hard. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it myself. Those are graphic images for discipline. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the fight. That's why this verse speaks to me directly. He can beat his body, which is a discipline, because there's a desire, which is the prize that he wants. And this is a prize that will not lose its power to attract. But let me just go back to these smooth verses, most of that I'm learning right now. A question that some of you could ask me, 
is, why do you bother now? You've been married for 43 years. You seems to have a reasonably good marriage. Your children are doing well. Your grandchildren are doing well. You've had a good ministry in this church. And if you think, if you tell me it's going to take 9 or 10 years for this to become second nature, you might not even be living by that time. And if you are alive, you'd have been married 50 years at that point. You really need all this stuff? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but why? Right, right. Because uh, it's good to know that somebody is listening, right? <laughs> uh, you know what? You're right. Except, unless there was an enduring motive for this. And what is that motive? We learned last week that working to make our marriages holy is an act of worship. And it's done out of reverence for Jesus. So let me ask you the question. When has Jesus had enough worship from us? Is it enough to say you worshipped him for 43 years and you're married? Why are you bothering to worship him for another 10 more years? When you put it that way, the question becomes ridiculous, doesn't it? So the enduring motive here has to do with the prize. Now you say, what prize are you going to get? Now you ought to understand the nature of biblical rewards. The nature of biblical rewards is very different than what we normally think of as reward. When we say to a son or a daughter, hey, clean up this room and I'll give you ice cream. There's a reward that motivates the person. But the reward is not organically related to the obedience. There's no connection between a clean room and ice cream. But if on the other hand you were able to tell a slightly older son, listen, if you learn to keep your room in an orderly fashion, as you get older, that orderly life will enable you to accomplish much more. Now that's a different kind of reward. There the reward is organically connected to the discipline. In fact, as C.S. Lewis said, the reward is the discipline coming to fruition. That's what this kind of stuff is. The reward that I'm looking forward to, and we all should look forward to, as we work on our marriages, is not a lollipop kind of a reward. It's a reward where the reward is the consummation of the very act itself. So that in this wonderful community of love that heaven will be characterized by, the person with whom I will have the most joyful relationship of all, although according to Jesus it will no longer be a marriage relationship, will be with the person that I've spent most time in doing that. And that is going to bring me incredible amounts of joy. That's how these things work. So it is with the other dimension of my worship. The, pre- the serving one another. My primary gifts are preaching and teaching. And that's how I attempt to serve the body and worship Christ that way, to make my body a living sacrifice that way. Otherwise, I wouldn't be going tomorrow night with Sham flying nine hours in the middle of the night to go to Lima, Peru for eight days. Why do I do that? What's the enduring reward for that? It's organically connected. There's no lollipops at the end waiting for me, completely unrelated to this. It's the consummation of the disobedience. As I understand the nature of heaven, there'll be so much more learning to do in heaven. There'll be no shortage of amazing teachers to teach me. I will have no problem with sin getting in the way. I will have an insatiable capacity for more learning. I will have all the humility that I need to learn from someone else. Because I'm in heaven. And I will just continue for the rest of my life. So it will be with you. Every reward, every prize that you're waiting for is organically connected to however you're serving Christ. You love serving people by through the gifts of service. You will have unbelievable joy in heaven serving people. And here you do it even though you're not appreciated. There will be no question of that. Everyone, everyone will be a community of radiant faces, shining in faces. That's the kind of joy. That we, that's the enduring joy that gives us a discipline. 
You see how this works right now? So if you forget everything else, can you just remember jello and bread and smooth stones? And you can forget all the rest of it. But just to help you, here's what we basically covered today. Holy living sacrifice, what it is, first of all, we offer our bodies to God and serve the body through our spiritual gifts. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds and we look for smooth, both generally through exposure to God's word in various ways and specifically by looking at smooth stones that make truth accessible in the day of battle. And all of that we are motivated and sustained by the prospect of joy in the praise. Let's pray again. Give us faith to know that you mean what you say, to trust you that you are good. And that all of this is because you want to give us the kind of joy that nothing can take, that nothing, that nothing can take away. That's what you said to me, so that your trust might be in me, that I am making this known to you. I just want to pray for everybody here, including myself, that they will know that this has come from you, that they might trust you, and because you love them. In Jesus' name. For blessing for you, this I just felt this morning as I was praying and worshipping the Lord and preparing my heart, the, the word that came to me so clearly was joy. And this is how I want that joy to work. I want to bless you with eyes that are able to see the smooth stones that you need. And may the very first time you put that into practice, may Jesus give you a foretaste of the eternal joy in heaven that you will want nothing else but to do that over and over again. Go in Jesus' name.